This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, we begin our several-week series of authors so that you can enhance your summer reading enjoyment. Some wonderful Jewish authors who together represent some of the best writing that the Jewish world has to offer in various genres. We start this week with Ivan Marzuk, who happens to live in my very own neighborhood in Silver Spring, Maryland, so that's very exciting. And actually, two of the authors that we feature fall into that category by pure coincidence, if there is such a thing. So I really hope you'll enjoy not only the conversations, but tapping into their work as well over these coming weeks and over the summer. In particular, there's going to be a wonderful Kickstarter campaign taking place in early July, for those listening when this is just being released, July of 2021, in which it will be a bat mitzvah present featuring the prophetess, Yvonne's wonderful book. And it's a really special gift for a bat mitzvah girl. I will post the Kickstarter in the show notes. Take a look at that really, really special opportunity for anyone trying to celebrate a bat mitzvah or to gift a wonderful young lady, something that will not only entertain them, but enrich them intellectually and spiritually as well. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Facebook and Instagram. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments, questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Sponsorships as well. Subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends and family as well so that they can enjoy this podcast too. And now to our conversation with wonderful Jewish author, Ivan Marzouk. We are here with Ivan Marzouk, an author. And uh, amazingly enough, I've been interviewing a number of authors lately for a, a summer author series. And uh, Ivan is also a local, local at least to me. <laughs> not, maybe not local to most of you out there, but local to me here in Silver Spring, Maryland, and a neighbor of another uh, author that I just interviewed, Leah Sipis. So we're really keeping it you know, uh, in the family, in the, in the local Silver Spring community. I never realized how much talent exists within like three blocks of my house. Maybe I got to get out more. But uh, how are you, Yvonne? I'm great. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to have you and so glad uh, we connected. So Yvonne, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I don't know if you're from this area, Silver Spring, Maryland, originally, or if you migrated here, as did I, later in life. But um, where are you from and and what was your upbringing like? Um, I grew up in Philadelphia, so I did migrate. Um, I grew up in in Philly, in the city, in the far Northeast. And uh, then immediately after high school, um, I I went to Johns Hopkins and kind of came down to the mid-Atlantic area. And I've been here ever since. So I went to school in Baltimore and then I came down to DC area for a job. And I've been in the DC area since then. Very cool. What was your upbringing like in Philly? Northeast was, was, I think, the main Jewish area for a long time. And it's kind of migrated over to Lower Marion, Bella Kinwood more. Although uh, I think Northeast is having a bit of a resurgence as well. 
now. If yeah, I think so. It's funny. I mean, I grew up in a part of Philadelphia where like almost everybody that I knew was Jewish, but like nobody at all was religious. Interesting. So I grew up in like a neighborhood where like basically there were more Jews than non-Jews, but like, you know, to maybe we would go to synagogue during the high holidays, that kind of, that kind of Because Northeast Philly is also where the main Orthodox community was for a long time. It's right. So in the lower Northeast, so now, so it's really fascinating because now like in the neighborhood where I grew up, there are like kosher restaurants. (laughs) Um, But when I was growing up there, there weren't in the, the Northeast Philly is like, there's like sort of lower Northeast and far Northeast. So the sort of a different neighborhood is where the religious Jews were. And I didn't know any of them when I was growing up. Interesting. It was like, you know, a person who kept kosher was like, whoa, Crazy. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I might not be worthy to talk to you. <laughs> so fascinating. So what well, I guess you had kind of a did you have sort of that typical Hebrew school, high holidays kind of background. I mean, it's so I grew up in a really in a really secular kind of background in a really secular kind of world where when actually the story is that when I was in elementary school, my closest friend who's still my one of my closest friends is Jewish. And she one night I wanted to play with her and she said, like, I can't play tonight. I have to go to Hebrew school. And I said, what's Hebrew school? And she said, oh, well, I'm Jewish. So I go to Hebrew school. So that's what I do. And I said, I think I'm Jewish. <laughs> I went home and asked my parents and I said, I, I'm Jewish. Are, are we Jewish? Because my friend goes to Hebrew school. And she says she does that because she's Jewish. And my parents were like, yeah, yeah, but we don't go to Hebrew school. And then like a, a period of time went by where I really wanted to go to Hebrew school. And they were like, yeah, we don't, we don't belong to a synagogue. We don't that's not what we're doing. And then one day my parents and their friends were like outside having this conversation on the block, the way that you would at night, like, you know, just kind of all the adults hanging out in the summer at night. And they came in and they found me listening to gospel music on TV. And then they decided I could go to Hebrew school. <laughs> that wow, was they the... were so unmoored by your, uh, yes. you know, they were shaking like... on their, their inner Jewish you know, yes, it's funny, like, you know, the, the last thing that a Jew knows is that they're not a Christian. And so fortunately, that was that was the sort of dividing line for my parents. And they said, no, she's she's going to Hebrew school. And my mother always said, may her memory be for a blessing. She didn't have any Jewish education at all. Um, neither of my parents really had much Jewish education. This like the whole lack of Jewish affiliation wasn't really either of their choices. And my mother said, well, she should have roots. Like it should be okay. Like that I should have roots. I'm an only child. So there was only me. And, and my mother always, um, later when I became an Orthodox Jew, was always like, I didn't mean that many roots, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's, that's funny. That's a great line. Sometimes that's how it goes. Right. You don't know where it's going to go. I was always looking like what, and I was always asking them questions. I mean, I like really wanted to understand. I was always like, well, what, you know, tell, tell me about God. Like, what is it? What, what is our soul? And like, they, they just had no idea. They, they hadn't had any, you know, kind of background like that. And it's not, you know, I don't, there's no blame to them. Yeah. It's just, I was like asking questions and it, it took a really long time for me to kind of get to a place where I could really actually ask those questions and get really, really meaningful answers that spoke to me. 
Fascinating. And the book that I wrote, the book, I mean, I know we'll get there, but the prophet is the story that I wrote is kind of written out of that place, out of the place of like that, you know, that kids who maybe don't have that kind of background or who are asking those questions and not getting answers that they're satisfied with, that like there should be a book, there should be a book that they can read that speaks to that, that inspires them and, um, and that helps them to be able to get those answers in an accessible way without having to work quite so hard to find them as I did. Well, beautiful. So what was your, I guess, as you were going through childhood and you had this, you know, very uh, attenuated religious connection, a little bit of Hebrew school once you, once you started singing gospel. Um, you know, by the way, I love gospel music. <laughs> it's to be great. I am a very musical person. I was singing when I was, you know, all through school. And um, yeah. so, you know, it was, it wasn't, there wasn't, I, I wasn't soulful, listening yeah. to that music out of kind of a spiritual instinct. It was yeah. just kind of, you know, it was music and there I was listening to it, but it, it sealed the deal for my fam- for my yeah. for my Hebrew school. You life. can go to Hebrew school and sing gospel. I think you can do both. But anyway, so you, you were having this upbringing. What were you interested in early on as a kid? Were you a, you know, were you interested in writing and so forth? Yes, yes. So my first love is is writing. I was writing. I mean, I had for years and years when I was like in first or second grade, I, um, there was like a literary magazine in my elementary school. And I wrote a haiku that like got put into the school literary magazine. I had that like framed on my desk for like my entire childhood. And uh, when I was in fifth grade for the first time, I wrote like a real story. It was maybe like 10 pages long in like tiny little handwriting. I, it was all sort of handwritten. That's what I that's what I knew to do. And my, a teacher of mine, her name was Joan Cohen. It's Joan Cohen. um, She lived and be well and be healthy in Florida where she lives now. And so she, she wrote onto it, onto the paper, like Judy Bloom lookout. And, you know, Judy Bloom was at the time, like my favorite author. That was like, you know, I was in fifth grade and uh, it was so inspiring to me, this, this thought that I might one day be able to be an author. And I, I held on to that for all the years that it took me to actually become one. And so did you feel that your future was going to be as a writer or did you have other interests? Yeah, it's hard. Like, you know, my, um, I do have a lot of interests and a lot of things that I'm, that I'm committed to and pursuing in different ways. I can't seem to stick with just one thing, but I actually thought I was going to be a writer. That's what I wanted to be. And then I didn't know if I would be able to sort of make a living in that. So then I thought, well, I'll work in publishing. That was like my, that was my thought, like I'll work in publishing and then I'll be able to become a writer through that. And actually when I was in college, I was doing internships and having summer jobs in publishing companies. And that the irony of this story is that one of the publishing companies that I worked for then, like I stayed in touch with the publisher loosely and, um, and he's the one who loved the book and decided to publish it. It was like a, a real experience for me to like go back and, and find that something from when I was younger actually like fulfilled the dream later. But anyway, I, I actually discovered that publishing was maybe not the best career choice for me and found that there, there are, I really committed to making a difference in the world. And there are so many different ways to do that. One of the things that became really important to me is um, protecting the environment and my concern about that. Um, and so I, I, right now I, I work for the United States Environmental Protection Agency and uh, I've done a lot of, of others sort of Jewish environmental work in my career. And so that has also been a really important theme in my life and in my work, although not in this, you know, not in the book. Like they're just, I, I have a multifaceted. Multifaceted, you're allowed to have more than one interest. It's okay. Uh, yeah. 
So you were, uh, you know, I guess at some point you, you said you headed up to Baltimore for college. Did you went to Hopkins for undergrad? Yeah, I did. I was in the writing seminars program and I was concentrating in fiction and, and had a great time at Hopkins. I really did. I met my husband there. I was part of the Jewish Student Association there and um, really involved in that. And, you know, really, you know, there in Baltimore kind of was able to kind of discover Judaism in a richer way than I had been able to do in childhood. There were plenty of people there who were happy to answer questions for me um, and help me understand what the Torah says about things and got a degree in writing from Hopkins. Fun fact, I also have, I have my master's degree in writing from Hopkins. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a great program. I did their creative nonfiction program. I don't know if we were there at the same time. I was there in uh, about 2000, 2001, 2002. Yeah, I was there a little bit earlier than that. The early I graduated days. in 98. So, okay, yeah. but then you were undergrad also. Yeah, um, yeah. So wouldn't have really crossed paths, but I was there um, and I really enjoyed it. I came in and out. I wasn't really part of the campus culture because grad students aren't really integrated the same way. But why did you choose Hopkins? You chose it because of their writing program? You know, it's a, I mean, I do feel like I'll just, I'm making a shout out for Hashgacha Pratit for like all the ways that like life just sort of, you know, if you're, you know, hopefully God willing, tuned into your instincts and listening to, you know, sort of where you're going. And like, I felt that God leads you along the way. And I do feel that way about Hopkins. My mom and I went on a, on a college trip, looking at colleges, like our South trip, because we were in Philly and we went down to um, we saw the schools in DC and everything. And we were planning to go see Hopkins and we almost skipped it. We were tired. We'd been to a lot of different places and we thought, yeah, you know, it's just a medical school who, you know, it's not going to be good anyway. We just decided to go. <laughs> and I ended up, we, we got a tour from this young woman and she herself was a writing sums major and her advisor was Stephen Dixon. And I had spent that whole summer, like not having any idea of his association with Hopkins, reading Stephen Dixon books. Wow. I was like, your advisor is Stephen Dixon? I was like amazed, <laughs> floored. And we were so impressed by the tour and everything. And I just really, I just fell in love with it. I, I thought this is where I want to be. And it really was where I needed to be for so many different reasons, um, including the fact that my husband was, was there that I didn't know, but it was just, um, it was a, the whole experience of going there. I was so grateful and so grateful to get in and so grateful to ha have opportunity to have like such a great education there. That's fascinating. You know, most people think of Hopkins, of course, as engineering and pre-med and premier health institution. Um, but interestingly, this is surprising. Hopkins and Iowa are the top two writing schools in the country. Who would have thought that Hopkins is like, everyone thinks it's like all Asian Americans studying, you know, biomedical engineering. And Iowa is like a bunch of farm boys, you know, I don't know. That's what people would stereotypically think. And these are the two highest ranked writing programs. Right, right. No, I mean, I was really impressed by that too. When I looked at all the stats went before I came to the school and, and nobody knew that. So yeah, it's a, it's not a, it's a well-kept secret, but you gotta it, look beneath the great, surface great sometimes. that's the, uh, that's the moral of the story. You never know where, where the riches lie until you really, you know, try yeah. to unearth them. Yeah. We all make assumptions about things and very often we're wrong. So <laughs> you just right, look, right. Look a little deeper. So what did you do Jewishly at this time? How did you, I mean, Hopkins is downtown Baltimore, Homewood area for those unfamiliar. Yeah. So it's not really connected to the like massive Baltimore Jewish community. So how did your own Jewish odyssey unfold at that time? Yeah. So, um, I mean, first of all, that Hopkins had a really 
a very sort of eclectic but committed group of young Jews who were at the school at the time. Before their beautiful new building. Well, now it is, yeah. Right, before so that, we were all, like, was it Rabbi Katz still? Yeah, Rabbi Katz. And there was like a kosher dining hall that was like in the basement of a of one of the uh, dorms and uh, like very Hamish with a, with a ping pong table and like, you know, a little place where there was a minion. So there was like a core group of Orthodox students and then like a group of other kids who were, you know, doing other, you know, practicing Judaism in other ways. And like a lot of kids like me kind of started out saying I'm reform and, um, and like writing the reform services and everything. And then like sort of gradually as I was learning, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but gradually as I was learning, I was becoming more and more excited and inspired by Jewish tradition and the opportunity to learn. And the truth is that like, although the, they're sort of separate from each other, from the Pikesville community, um, they did have a program where you could, where sort of young adults from the Pikesville community would come and do learn in Chavruta with the students. So you could just sign up. It was called Mondays at eight because it was Monday at eight. At some point they switched it to Tuesday at nine. And we were like, well, should we still call it Mondays at eight? Anyway, so, but we, we had this Mondays at eight program and you could sign up and get a Chavruta from the community. You know, it wasn't like a pushy kind of experience. Yeah. I, I had the opportunity to young, learn with really extraordinary young women and to kind of learn sources with them and to also ask questions with them. But they also invited me to come to, to meet their family and to, you know, the, my first experience in an Orthodox synagogue in my entire life was my first converter and it was Deborah Friend. We learned Megillah Esther the entire year. And she brought me to her family and to and to her synagogue for quorum night. And I had never, ever walked into an Orthodox synagogue before. Like, I didn't know that you could, just, like, I didn't know that I'd be allowed in. Like, and it was just so, it was like so peaceful and beautiful. And she's like, after we listened to the McGill reading, she like gave me a little tour around and she said like, you can leave your things here. They'll be perfectly safe. And it made such an impression on me, like that, you know, everywhere you go, like you can't leave your things anywhere and have someone say that. But here, like they were just, you know, obviously they would be perfectly safe in the women's section of an Orthodox synagogue. And um, those were the kinds of sort of entryways that helped me to feel like um, I could do this. I could be here. This could be a place that could like this is a place that kind of resonates with, you know, what I really, really am looking for in my in my soul. Do you remember what shul it was? It was the Agoda. Wow, <laughs> hardcore right away. Seriously, pa- it's not, that's not exactly or, my or Spring. That's not exactly my speed um, currently, but it was, uh, but it was a powerful experience. The Agoda of Park Heights. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, Rabbi Heineman, uh, who is the long, long time rabbi there, is actually coming to Silver Spring on. Monday, I'm sure. Wait, wait. By the time this is posted, it'll be way in the past. But uh, I just saw a, a poster that he's coming. So funny confluence there. He's the, the rabbi there, and he's coming to speak in Silver Spring and like on Memorial Day. Like, oh wow, wow. So interestingly enough, but you know, like you never know where those those connections are going to come. And to your credit, you were open, you know, participating to to signing up for the chavruta for showing up, and you could have easily said, you know what, these kids are too intimidating. They're too knowledgeable. I don't really belong here. And you kind of put yourself out there, which is, you know, a, a huge credit to you. Thank you. I mean, you know, the reality is that I was desperate to know. I was like, somebody please talk to me because it's funny. Like, you know, it's, I think there are some people who are like, that's too much or I don't want, 
you know, I don't want to know that. But I was like, can somebody please explain? Because I was so unaffiliated that like, I didn't even, you know, I didn't even know, like, I didn't even know what Kiruv was. Like, I was just like, can someone please tell me about these things and give me access to it? Because it felt like a locked door. And I just, I just wanted someone to kind of sit, like open it up and let me in. (laughs) So now during college, you, I imagine were investing in your writing and you had these, you know, the incredible resources there and mentors and so forth. But I, I know that as you referenced, you also made a career at some point in, I guess, to this day in some way, environmental studies. Yeah. Were you kind of pursuing these dual tracks concurrently or you know, what was the, what was the primary focus at that stage of life? When I was in college, so I I was very involved in the Jewish Students Association. And I ran a conference that was like an Amichad conference, a conference intended to bring Jews to get like Jewish unity. Um, so it, it almost feels like so, um, you know, so passe now, but it, you know, it's it still something that I feel is very important um, for Jews to be able to talk to each other and understand each other and learn from each other, um, regardless of where they come from. Uh, But I ran this conference and as part of the conference, like one of the little breakout groups was about Jewish environmentalism, which was also something that I didn't know anything about. And I was very, I was fascinated by that. And I asked the leader, like, is anyone actually doing anything about this? And he said, yes, there's an organization called the Coalition on the Environment and Jewish Life, COJOL, and they are working to advocate and educate Jews about this. And so when I was, when I was finishing up my, that was in my senior year. And as I was finishing up my senior year, so I was applying for fellowships to just kind of see, you know, in the, like, if could I continue being involved in the Jewish community professionally? And I applied for several fellowships. I was like, oh, I'll give this Kojal one a whirl. And that's the one I got. So I ended up working for a year for, so there was a dual um, fellowship with the Coalition on the Environment and Jewish Life and the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism in DC. And that's how I came down to DC, uh, representing the Jewish community on the environment on Capitol Hill, which was an amazing experience in so many ways. And also like hard for me because at the time I was changing, like I was growing, I was starting to be Shomer Shabbat. I was, you know, and I don't know that I quite fit. <laughs> But I also became really passionate about the environment. I really learned about the environment. I learned about the Jewish, started to learn, I learned much more later, but started to learn about what, you know, what Jewish tradition says about protecting the environment and how linked that is, how important the environmental issues are. And so after that year, I applied for a job at the Environmental Protection Agency and I got, I got my job there. I've been there for more than 20 years through like a whole series of life phases. And I've worked part-time a lot and I was, I ran, um, I ran a Jewish environmental organization called Kampfinisharim for 10 years, like while working part-time for EPA. Kind of a side hustle. A side hustle, yeah, while working three days a week, while working two days a week for EPA for a decade. So yeah, I, I felt very compelled by both sort of the Jewish sources and also by the urgency of the environmental issues when I had the chance to learn them like from the inside. What's interesting is that, you know, I think probably the common trajectory would be that people are, you know, excited or inspired about environmental issues, like that's their thing. And then they look for jobs in that industry. But here it seems kind of like you were looking for jobs and then you got a job with that area and then you became passionate as a result. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, I was, you know, it's funny, like, I I do think that one could say that the themes of my life, the threads of my life have been writing and 
the environment and Judaism and how they kind of mat, you know, how they sort of flow together and thread in different kinds of ways. And so I was like kind of pursuing like my interest in Judaism in some ways and came to learn a lot more about the environment through that. By the way, a nice little acronym that you can use. Jew stands for Judaism, environmentalism, and writing. Oh, that's right. That's true. Yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> that one's free. You're yeah. a real Jew. Um, <laughs> that's really cool. So I mean, tell me a little bit about the environmentalist stuff. And I, I want to get over into your writing, of course. But I mean, with the way we actually were first introduced, ironically, since we live two blocks away from each other, <laughs> we should probably both get out more, I guess. But uh, you know, the, the way we really were introduced was through a colleague of yours from the, your time working in environmentalism, who I interviewed on this program, you know, a number of months ago, and yeah. he lives in Israel, right? So yeah. um, tell me a little bit about your work in environmentalism and, and kind of what that uh, trajectory was like for you. Yeah. So, I mean, what happened was, so I, I worked for Kojal and I got involved with a local kind of Kojal chapter called Shomri Adama. And then I joined Kesher Israel, the, the Orthodox synagogue in Georgetown in DC, yep. you know, and then I started working for EPA and all of these things sort of started flowing together. And then I thought, well, I'll start an environmental group here at Kesher in my synagogue and we could have a green group and we could do some environmental things here in my, in my synagogue. And that went really well. I mean, Kesher is very, um, you know, at the time, and I think still now very, you know, kind of open to those types of programs. Yeah, very progressive and, within the Orthodox yeah. community. Yeah. And interest, like, and also very supportive of young people trying to do interesting things. So, uh, so I started this green group and we did really cool things. I mean, we did camping trips and we did like, you know, hikes and park cleanups and, um, you know, and different kinds of environmental initiatives. We raised some money for, um, for an effort that was um, restoring, restoring um, a natural area in Israel. And at some point along the way, I was talking to Joelle Novi, who's now the head of our local interfaith power and light, but she, this was long before that, but she said, I've never heard of an Orthodox synagogue having a green group before. I hadn't really realized it was so unique. And uh, I thought, and she said, you know, you should do, you should do something about that. You should maybe find some, some others that are interested in that and kind of, you know, maybe, maybe more than one Orthodox synagogue would be interested in doing that. And so I started to kind of put out the word in the Orthodox community that I was interested in creating a environmental organization that sort of focused on Orthodox Jews and Orthodox synagogues and educating about this from a Torah perspective. And it, it took a while, but I was able to gather together four other people and created like a committee of five to create this organization come finish And the whole, like, it was really interesting because in the beginning, like there was kind of like, there are no Orthodox Jews who cared about the environment. And then I created like a group like online and encourage people to sign up for a mailing list. And for like weeks, like every day I would come home from work and there would be like more people that signed up for this list. Like there was just, there was all this interest. There were all these people. I, like you had to plant a flag and say, I am interested in this so that other people could rally around it because there were so many people who thought I'm the only Orthodox Jew who cares about the environment. And it started to, it, it built into a movement um, over a course of time. And finally to the point where I um, started working part-time for my job so that I could run it in the other part of the time. And uh, we, we created a lot of really great things. We created a Torah teaching for every Parsha. And that's how I got connected with Rabbi Yonas Anerl because he had done some of that research already. And I was able to get a little bit of money to pay him to kind of, and together we worked together to kind of elaborate that into a whole series that now is, is sort of morphing into his eco Bible with a, I'm sure a lot more work and research on his part since then. Um, 
so that was like our first effort. And we were using those materials to share all around the Jewish community. Like actually the environment is such an important topic that like for every single Parsha, you could have something to say as a Devar Torah. That was the idea. Like if you ever wanted to talk about the environment any week of the week here, here, here's something you could say. And after that, we created a whole series of materials for every Jewish holiday. And ultimately this series of 18 teachings, core teachings about Torah and the environment funded along with other pieces by the ROI community and later gathered into a book called Uplifting People and Planet. And that resource has like 18 teachings. And for each teaching, it has like a source sheet full of materials. It has a podcast and a video, like a whole whole set of materials so that, so you could really get a grasp of like, what does Judaism say about the environment? Here's the comprehensive, you know, set of most important messages. There definitely is that uh, sentiment that the Orthodox community is not as invested in environmental issues. And I, I think it's true objectively. I don't, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's just like a theory. Uh, I have, t- I have two theories as being theories as to why that is. I think first of all, the Orthodox community is very sensitive to sort of a perversion of Jewish values and the sense that, well, if, if it's something that, you know, the liberal or heterodox Jewish establishment is invested in and is sort of lionizing and embracing as a social activism, so that of necessity is something that we should be pushing away. Because I think there is a real concern about social causes or, so, you know, social justice replacing ritual Jewish practice. Yeah, so I think that's a big part of it. It's kind of the reflexive uh, aversion to a number of social causes, but environmentalism in particular. And then secondly, I think a more just on a pragmatic level, I think Orthodox Jews are so busy with so many different things to think about. You know, there's there's learning and there's davening and there's, yeah, which itself could take up your whole day. And then your children, I mean, there's just a bajillion things going on in every, you know, just within the Jewish frame of any Jew, Orthodox Jew's life, not to mention like they're going to work and any recreation, whatever. So that like crowds out special interest issues like that. Those are my theories. What do you think? (laughs) You know, you can say all of those things and maybe that's true, but I think, I mean, to me, I think that's countered by, by some, there are some counter examples to Orthodox Jews getting involved in other kinds of topics. And to me, I actually think, unfortunately, that it's all gotten wrapped up in politics. That was my first theory. (laughs) Yeah, I feel that, I, I mean, but not not to the extent, not in the same, it, I mean, it's more than what you've said, I think. I mean, I think it's unfortunate to some extent that Jews and maybe Jewish religion has sort of gotten wrapped up in America in this weird political schism we have where like, it's, you know, where things are black and white, it's either this or that, you know, there's only, there's only one way to think about it and it's either over here or over here. And, you know, so that something like the environment that should not in any way be a political issue, it's for all of our benefit. It's for the future of our children and the future of our world and the health of our current children, you know, it's for, it's for us. The fact that that's sort of gotten wrapped up in American politics in such a counterproductive way is part of the problem. And then the fact that Jews have gotten wrapped up in American politics to such an extent that they might have a particular political position on a particular topic. And that means that I have to. Right. Everything is a coordinated body of positions. Right. I have to like agree to all of the same positions. I got to be on one side. And if the environment is on a different side that, you know, if the environment happens to be on a different list, then, you know, and to me, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's so unfortunate. 
you know, protecting my welfare, the welfare of the future, like the life of my grandchildren, the air quality that I'm breathing currently should somehow be tied up in like some kind of political conversation about how I feel about other social issues or how I feel about a certain politician that I do or don't like that to me, that's kind of ridiculous and unfortunate that we kind of gotten to this place. And like, remember, I'm a person who started out like pursuing Jewish unity. And like, you know, I feel like in some ways, like, I mean, and we're told Jews are supposed to be like loving and taking care of each other, regardless of where we come from. And I feel that it's very unfortunate. And I wish there was a solution to, to like, this is not Judaism. This is this is American politics that we've gotten ourselves like we've fallen into a trap. I, I absolutely agree. And you know, one of my great pet peeves is just the total lack of nuance that we experience nowadays. And you saw we saw this with COVID. You know, as we're coming out of it, just you know, either you had to be on like an absolutist and you know, like uh, whatever on on one you know extreme side of the aisle, or you had to be like a you know a denier and you know you couldn't take it seriously. Like you couldn't just be like balanced. Like I'm a moderate. You know, like I, right. I think take it seriously, but I don't subscribe all, you know, like you couldn't do both. And it's like that on so many issues. It's really frustrating, you know? Yeah. One of the, one of the teachers that I've been learning from recently. So I, I should just say, like, I, I have been interested in learning Jewish mysticism for a long time. And part of the, the book is actually like just little sprinkled in little bits of Jewish mysticism that I learned. Cause I feel like they are important to us today. Um, and I've been learning with Sari Hudit Schneider, who teaches from the Old City. And she has this amazing series that I completely recommend to everyone. It's on her website, which is like a small, still small voice um, is her website. That's called Paradox. And it's all about how like the antidote to everything that we're dealing with is being willing to being able to sort of bear a paradox, being able to internalize and hear two different sides of an issue and understand that there's truth in each one. And being able to kind of understand, like, I have a particular view and my particular view is important, but it's not the only view. And being willing to both, you know, kind of own one's own position, but also hear the views of other people and recognize that there might be a piece of truth in theirs as well. And she really says that that creating ourselves as, you know, sort of big enough that we can hear the different perspectives and sort of hear the truth in each of them is really critical to, um, to bringing light into the world. Yeah, I mean, what, what's really surprising is that observant Jews, you know, believing Jews, we live with paradox all the time. I mean, on a philosophical level, we talk about, you know, God's omniscience and, and versus, you know, our free will. We talk about the fact that we are these, you know, minuscule creatures vis-a-vis God, and yet we're these great, you know, the pinnacle of creation, and we have to go out and accomplish and do like we live with you know, tragedy and suffering and humor and accomplishment and and, and lightness and yeah. all these paradoxes that as Jews we have always lived with, and it seems like today we we struggle to kind of hold two thoughts in our heads at the same time, and it's uh it's unfortunate. Right. No, it's a. I mean, it's an opportunity for growth for us to kind of not have to always buy into to that. I hope that we can somehow find ways like as individuals and as a community to move to move through this and into a better place. I'm pretty confident people hearing our call for that on this podcast will will basically solve the issue, put it to rest worldwide. Well, we, can, we can always hope that um that it made a difference to one. <laughs> That's it. There we go. So uh Yvonne, tell me a little bit about your writing. I mean, your working your career was environmental activism, environmental work. Were you writing all the way through? You had this training in writing. You had a penchant for it. You know, did you continue writing as, as a side, again, a side hustle to your side hustle, maybe? Or you know, <laughs> well, when were you I, writing? What were you writing? 
you know, I think, um, I mean, to some extent, like writing has just woven its way all the way through my life, you know, even in my environmental work, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the materials that I created for Confidentiarian were written materials. And a lot of the work that I do at, at EPA is actually communications oriented um, in one way or another, outreach oriented or communications oriented. But also, I had this book that I wanted to write and it was an interest. I mean, I worked on this book for 20 years. It took like, I, I would, I would start writing it and then I would like, Oh, I have an organization that I'm running. I think I'll stop for now. Like at one point I thought I'll write it while I'm pregnant. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, and sometimes I would get really inspired and I'd sit down and I'd say, I'd close the door and like my, nobody's allowed in my office and I'd write for you know, hours and hours. And then, and then I, you know, then they'd knock on the door and somebody would need dinner, you know, and then <laughs> like be finished with writing for a, for a few weeks or, or months. When my second son was born, I, I got a very generous maternity leave. And I also completed my work with Confinisharium. And I said like, this is it. This is my one chance. And uh, I got a writing coach who helped me overcome some of the barriers that were in my way like the fact that I kept writing the first 50 pages over and over again. And like, you know, just kept not, you know, there were certain parts of the book that I just never, that I just never had actually written. <laughs> like you're going to have to write those parts and really helped me to overcome some of those things. And then I was, and I committed to working four hours a week and uh, it took about three years to, uh, to get a complete draft that I would be able to share with publishers. And, and also I had a, a writing coach who, not a writing coach, a, a developmental editor who helped a little bit with, helped me to resolve some of the issues that I was having trouble resolving myself um, structurally in the plot. And then I had a, a solid draft to work with. So what was the premise of the book? And it sounds like you had this idea in your mind already from your 20s, if not earlier. So like, what, what was it that, that was so animating for you? Yeah. So this is a story about an American teenage girl who's unexpectedly called to join a secret community of prophets. And fundamentally, I was answering the question, like, what does it mean to have a relationship with God today? Because one of the things that was really bothering me at the time that I started writing it was like this sort of thing, this idea that we have, this tradition that we have that prophecy ended at the beginning of the Second Temple period. And I get that. That makes sense to me. But like what was left for me was like, but what? Like, does that mean that we have no... Like, like in some ways it was when it was originally presented to me, it was almost like that meant like, God forbid, like, like that God was no longer talking to us, like that we were no longer, that there was no longer a relationship. And of course, that's not what we mean, but I feel like using sort of prophecy as a, as a kind of lens or as a kind of framework or rubric for exploring issues related to like what exploring today, what it means to me to like have a life's purpose? What does it mean to, to be a soul, to live as a soul? What does it mean to have a meaningful relationship with Hashem? What does it mean to be called for something and actually experience and fulfill that calling? Because, you know, the most fulfilling thing in the world really is knowing that we're being, that, you know, that we have a purpose and then living out that purpose and discovering that. So in the book that's called like growing into your gifts, the way it starts is this girl, um, her grandfather who passes away at the very beginning of the book had left in her a childhood prayer book that he had given to her, like for Rachel, may she grow into all her gifts. And what does that mean to grow into all of our gifts? What are my gifts? You know, what are your gifts? And are we growing into them? How can we fulfill what we're really meant to do here? to create a match between the gifts that we've been given and the sort of fulfillment of our potential. And that's really what the story is about. 
So what is the uh, society of prophets or prophetesses? How do they uh, play into this, this notion of finding your gifts? Because the reality is we don't have prophecy anymore. Yeah. Except among the fools and the children. as, as the Right, says. exactly. So in my book, so the prophets are this sort of secret community. And the premise of the book, and it's fiction, so I'm not, you know, if, it, implying that there is. Such Darn, a I was excited to go searching. Yeah. yeah, to my knowledge, there is no secret community, although I'm still looking for them. Maybe you have to create it. Yeah. So the the premise is that prophecy didn't really end. It just kind of went underground. And people have been kind of passing it along secretly from generation to generation, like a special group of people who are kind of carrying along this tradition of being able to receive messages. And their messages are not so much like prophecy the way that it is in the Bible, where you have to write something down and it's for the whole generation. But like they have um, kind of individual roles, like things that they're meant to do to kind of push along God's intention in the world. So like, you know, it might be, it might be helping this person, you know, achieve this particular goal or like inspiring a person to do this kind of thing or passing along a book at the right moment or passing along a little wisdom while selling some art or those kinds of things. And together as a whole, they have a kind of a community that supports each other and that has a role in sort of push, you know, advancing Hashem's intentions for the world. And the part of the story is like, you know, people are actually called for prophecy and they are able to help each other kind of like sort of initiate each other into this world. So this girl, Rachel, is sort of unexpectedly called and she's not necessarily the person that you would expect to be called. She wouldn't expect to be called to be a prophetess and the others wouldn't, but she has a kind of uh, long lineage that has sort of been lost to her in some ways, but that makes her actually very appropriate. Um, but that she wouldn't have necessarily known that. And there's a prophet who has been called to teach her and who arrives to be able to help her work through the challenges of being called to be a prophetess, challenges like unexpected visions and other kinds of challenges to her journey to help her grow into her gifts. So it sounds like in the imagery here, you were the Rachel of the story. Rachel as an expression of yourself in some way. Who is your prophet in, in your actual life? <laughs> it's funny. Everyone always asks these questions like, how does this relate to your life? I mean, I think this is more of a fantasy of what I wish it would have been. Like, <laughs> I wish that someone might have uh, come and uh, been there to teach me, you know, had, with where it was all very clear. But I did have some very meaningful experiences in my, especially the truth is there have been teachers that I've been grateful to um, to encounter like along the way. And I feel like who have really played an important role in my personal growth. But I would say that the most, the first sort of most important experience for me was um, ILTC, which is the International Leadership Training Conference run by Earth Youth Organization. Yeah. yeah. Um, when I was in, so I was very involved in BBG when I was in high school. That was like sort of my first touch point for like meaningful Judaism. And I went to ILTC, Starlight, Pennsylvania. Right near Camp Marasha, actually. Oh. In fact, the Marasha program used to do a joint uh, event with them. And I would, they would come over once to Marasha, and then Marasha would go over to them. And I remember going there uh, one su- summer of 97, I want to say. Yeah, so I was there in 93. Okay. So, Again, um, we missed each other. There we yeah, <laughs> we just missed. So, but, um, but there were some really meaningful experiences there. And I actually had a couple of really meaningful conversations with Zohar Raviv. Zohar from uh, Birthright. Yes, exactly. 
he was a shaliach at the ILCC. And so I got to know him. And then the other amazing story was um, Rabbi Kalimnik from Rochester, who recently yeah. passed away. But he, you know, it's funny that you never know the difference you're going to make for someone. I said, I met him years later and told him that ILTC made a difference for me. And he said, when, when were you there? Tell me a program that made a difference for you. And I told him, I had never met him. I told him a program that really made a difference for me. And he said, I was there and I designed that program. Good as well. We never met. I wouldn't have known how to talk to an Orthodox rabbi then. But, you know, so he, so he's, let's say that he's one of my, uh, one of my prophet educators. Fascinating. Okay, great, great people. So we had mentioned when we were, uh, before we got on, that uh, we thought maybe we'd do a little quick reading here. Yeah. Uh, just kind of a teaser. We have never done this on the podcast, Yvonne. So we are, we are breaking ground awesome. right now. Give us a little taste and then we'll wrap up with a couple more uh, questions. Yeah, thanks. That would be great. So what I want to read is this scene, like that for me is kind of the growing into your gift scene. So this girl, Rachel, has been dealing with visions. And uh, it's just kind of at the point where her, like in the beginning, the visions are so under, not understandable and she's so new that she's not really expected to do very much with them. But here is a moment when she actually is being called to do something for someone that she knows. And one of the things that I like to say about this is like, this is like my feminine superpowers scene because, you know, sometimes we have in American life, sometimes we have an idea of what a superhero is and what they do and how they, how they save the day. And that vision of sort of power and dominance and strength is kind of a masculine picture of what a superpower is. Um, but they're also feminine superpowers. And one of the things about this is that Rachel is using, sort of, is using prophetic superpowers for feminine superpowers to save someone who needs to be saved. And uh, I like to think like, this would be so different if it was a boy who was doing the saving. And yet there's so much power in saving the day in this way, using intuition and empathy and, um, and insight and, and Jewish gifts of wisdom. You've been scraping the bottom of that yogurt for 10 minutes, Lauren pointed out at lunch. Sorry, I said, glancing up at her. I was just thinking about something. Care to share, she asked, popping the last of her sandwich into her mouth. I shook my head. She tilted her head, curious. Are you still worried about that poetry kid? That instant seemed to last a long time as scenes from a recent meditation flashed before me. Freed from school early, he sits in the secret place. Suddenly, I understood. Today, in the snow, today it was time for me to, what, how? Frustration descended on me so powerfully, I felt almost dizzy. What was I supposed to do for him? Where was my clear instruction, my prophetic guidance? How could this be my responsibility? No one had answered any of my questions. Just as rapidly, my frustration was replaced with fury, then desperation. I stood, ignoring Lauren's puzzled expression and the lunch tray in front of me. I have to go. But we're not done till fifth period, she said. I shook my head, grabbing my bag. He's gone already. Outside, I wandered the streets looking for him. The snow was already half an inch deep on the sidewalk. The frigid wind blew snow into my face, freezing my nose and cheeks. My fingers felt numb inside my gloves. A stream ran under some of the roads in our neighborhood. That gully where he hid had to be somewhere nearby. Half dazed by the cold, I walked several blocks in one direction before deciding it was the wrong way and turning back. 
Blinded by my own hot tears, I tripped several times, finally falling and twisting my left wrist. Then I heard a low, terrible groan. I froze, staring around me. Jake, I screamed. Where was he? I waited, willing him to moan again. Oh. Then the awful sound of retching and such a long and terrible cry, I ran in his direction. His baseball hat had fallen off. He wore no coat or gloves. His eyes were wide open, his body convulsing in some kind of seizure. I stumbled downhill from the sidewalk to the stream, slipping a little on the snow. His shaking continued, spit and vomit dribbling from his mouth. I doubted he even knew I was there. Ignoring the vomit, I knelt down next to him and grasped his fingers. They were stiff and frighteningly cold, but when I blew warm air onto them, he recoiled. Wincing a little at my sore wrist, I slipped off my gloves and put them on his hands. Help, I shouted. There was no answer, only a snowy silence. I was too late. What if he died right here? I thought of that time I'd rescued Chris after his bike accident, knocking on doors until I found someone to help. But I couldn't leave Jake here alone. Hardly thinking, I opened my bag, tossing books and tissues into the snow. At last, my hands closed around my cell phone, and with trembling fingers, I dialed 911. It's an emergency, I yelled into the phone. When I'd finished giving the details, Jake had stopped shaking. His breath came in shallow gasps. Jake, I said, stroking his icy face with my cold fingers, stay with me. I survived only because of you. The words came back to me as if I was dreaming, but this was no dream. Jake lay unconscious, his body slowly being covered by the falling snow. Tears came rushing down my face, defrosting the tears already on my cheeks. I tried, I said, wiping my tears with my left sleeve so I didn't have to stop stroking his cheek with my right hand. I tried, please, I screamed aloud, please, please. At last, I understood I was praying. God, God, let him live, please. I prayed like that until finally I heard sirens approaching in the distance. Lovely. Okay. Gotta hear what comes next. <laughs> I have to get the book. Yvonne, <laughs> as we sort of wrap up, tell me about the publishing process and what that was like, because it's very difficult to get published. And certainly for a first time author, you know, in this genre, at least, what was that like? And then, of course, where could people get the book and, and all of that good stuff? Yes. I, I mean, like I said earlier, it's really a Hashkacha Prati kind of miraculous experience for me. The first publisher that I approached for the book bought the book. And I feel that it was, you know, a complete miracle. I did feel that Hashem wanted this book to be published. And it was this publisher that I had worked for when I was in college. And I think that, you know, when he originally said, like, we, we met and we talked and I told him about the book. And I think he was really humoring me when he told me he would read it and consider it, but he really liked it. And I had to, you know, I did some work of kind of like check, checking with other people to make sure this was legit. But, you know, I, I got an advance and, and it worked out perfectly because he's in Baltimore. Um, and so it made it easy for us to have meetings and back when people met in person and stuff. And it was just a, an absolute privilege to be able to, um, to work with a publisher, to, to be able to partner together in, in getting the word out about the book. He really helped to get the book out in library systems all around the country. And we've been partnering together to, to sell the book, which has been a great experience. What's the name of the publisher? It's called Bancroft Press. On Bancroft Road? On Bancroft Road, yeah. For those who know Pikesville, yeah. Who's behind it? So the publisher, his name is Bruce Sports. Cool. I used to live on Bancroft Road. That's <laughs> oh wow, that's in amazing. The cross yeah, apartments. so that place, 
the place that I was describing in the book. So the story is set in Baltimore and the place that I was describing is right there in cross country where the creek um, kind of runs under the roads for people who know Pikesville. Okay, so I, I lived in, in the cross country apartments, like 3309, I believe it was, right there uh, kind of in, the, in, in that grassy area between right off Bancroft yeah, and Clark's. Yeah. So uh, I quite well and I grew up oh, right wow. around the corner. Yeah. So I should say in terms of the, in terms of your other questions. So the book is available, it's available on Amazon. It's available as in Kindle version on Amazon um, and also in hardcover version. I also just want to say that I have a lot of things that can kind of support the book. So I have a teacher's guide and we have about a dozen schools that are currently considering it. We did a mother-daughter book night here um, at Berman Hebrew Academy that went really beautifully. And I have like sort of a model for that. If anyone wants to use the book for mother-daughter book night, it's great for that. For to see how adults and young adults kind of read the book in different ways and kind of take it in and then talk to each other is really powerful. I also have like a, a self-guide for young adults who'd like to read the book together as a group so that they can kind of uh, work through the book themes during the course of a, a period of time while reading the book together. I really love to do programs in schools and for book clubs. And so I'm very available and open for that. And the book itself has discussion questions for book clubs at the, at the end in the book itself. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And um, if schools or um, communities want to buy the book as a group, there are um, bulk prices available for communities looking to buy it together. Yeah, it's really more than a book. It's, it's like a whole educational platform. It really is. And my website is growintoyourgifts.com and uh, I'm, all my contact information is there. I'd love to be in touch with anyone who'd like to explore that further. Yeah, I think grow into your gifts is easier to spell than Yvonne Marzouk. So <laughs> true, that, true. Was, that was a wise choice there. <laughs> true, true. With the URL. Well, Yvonne, thank you so much. What a fascinating conversation and just all the different aspects of your life. And of course, uh, your great new success as a writer, which I'm sure will only uh, persist into the future. So thank you, Yvonne Marzouk, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Great talking to you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.